You have said that Donald Trump was put in the White House by God. You know, everybody else thinks it's the Russians. I think it was the providential hand of God. Folks, President Trump is winning these battles against the GOP establishment. If any collusion took place, it would be between the DNC and the Clintons. You would think he would aspire to, to be the president of the United States and act like a president of the United States. But, uh, you know, that's just not going to be the case. We're back with another edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. I'm here with Philip Gravich of The New Yorker. Hello, Philip. Hi there. And Katie Royfe of NYU. Hi. So for today, we've assigned ourselves The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. We did not assign the 10-part Hulu series, but uh, I think some of us may have at least dipped into it. So the ground rules are you're allowed to mention it, but we're really talking about the book. We want this to be the book club, not the TV club. So first impressions. Philip, had you read this before? I hadn't. Yeah. Um, so I was curious because obviously uh, it's been around for 30 years and I've been around longer. So I, I sort of vaguely it's been a book that I've heard talked about since my 20s. And I didn't know quite what to expect. I mean, I'm not usually a, a huge fan of um, sci-fi dystopias. And that's essentially the kind of uh, book it is simply because the mechanics of, of making the – of explaining the whole setup – often is such a preoccupation. And I think that is actually um, sort of clumsy in this book. But but the idea uh, which you get is is that America as we know it, has, or as we knew it in 86, has been over, overthrown. It comes out uh, about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the book that it's only been three years since um, Christian fundamentalists uh, disguised as Islamic fundamentalists had uh, assassinated the president and uh, killed everybody in Congress and uh, decapitated the government, and that there's been a period of sort of sectarian wars absorbing the country, and that this is now a a culture called Gilead, where women are completely subjugated according to extremely primitive readings of the Bible, and, and sort of certain biblical texts are extracted to justify, and there's a category of women, the handmaids, who are the breeders. Um, they're basically uh, sex slaves, but not for sex so much as for reproductive purposes, uh, or at least that's the ostensible justification. Um, most of our cultural world, from everything that's published and everything that exists in art and culture, has been wiped away. And uh, everybody somehow internalized this completely. And it seems like it's a kind of uh, male hegemony, but at the same time, most of the people we see as enforcers in, from the woman's point of view are other women, um, which seems to be one of Margaret Atwood's sort of careful what you wish for when you wish for a world dominated by women, oh, feminists, uh, uh, sort of like cautionary tales uh, is that, you know, women often are both agents of their own oppression just as much as, I suppose, humans are, um, but also, you know, that a utopian vision can turn into a dystopian one very, very quickly, which it seemed to me um, intriguing, but but rather crude. I mean, as dystopian literature goes, one of the things really interesting and clever about the premise is instead of just projecting it forward the way most dystopian novels tend to do, use the term sci-fi, there's no technology in it, there's no kind of futuristic stuff. It actually, it's not 2086 in the world of the book. In a lot of ways, it's 1686. It's gone back. Most of this is drawn from the sort of Puritan theocracy of the English colonies. Yeah, and and also one other element is that um, 
pollution has made almost everybody sterile. So only a very few people can bear children. And so these women who are the handmaids are fertile, and that that's what makes them kind of enslaved. That's their the situation. And women, not all women in the society are slaves, but no. most women are. The handmaids are slaves, and then these other women, the Marthas, who are the servants. And um, the wives are— Are the Marthas not supposed to all be black? It seemed like that. Oh, I didn't the get Martha that. I, didn't, I don't think so. Yeah. Though in no, in they sometimes are, but they're not always. Okay. But um, but that was I, I found that interesting. Sort but of the compare. wives are also miserable because they aren't allowed. They don't have sex with their husbands. They have to watch in this weird ritual. The handmaids have sex with their husbands, and they are the wives are not allowed to work. They're not allowed to read. And one of the wives is um, actually a kind of accomplished career person at the beginning. The main wife. Um, and then she has to give it all up because her dream is fulfilled and she's transported into this, like, you know, 1690s. Yeah. So what, I mean, given that what you do in this kind of book is you sort of take recognizable things and try to project them out to some extreme, is the the starting point for this book what was happening on the right when Margaret Atwood wrote it or what was happening on the left that is in the kind of anti-pornography, feminism, yeah, you know, she, which is, seems to be a part of how this society has come about. What I found interesting about it is, I mean, I think it's been kind of crudely and broadly misunderstood as this kind of feminist tome. Yeah. Um, and she's actually quite critical of feminism. And she's critical of the feminism of the period that was, as you say, sort of brewing then. It was when all of that stuff was kind of just beginning and brewing. And it was so the, like Andrea when Andrea Dworkin wanted to actually ban exactly, pornography exactly. and had an alliance with the sort of religious totally. right. Exactly, yeah. she's yeah. mixing those things together. So, and she also is kind of there, there's a mother. The mother of our main character is named Offred. Her real name is June, but they call everybody of Fred. So that's her, ma- you know, commander. And so her name is Offred, also June, and. Offred's mother is a feminist, a sort of lefty feminist. And that character is not presented as a hero or celebrated. There's sort of a certain amount of irony toward her. So Atwood is actually locating her feminism in a pretty sort of sophisticated place, a nuanced place where she is both critical of this certain kind of feminism and what it's doing and also obviously kind of putting forward this very strong feminist message. But what is she telling us, or what was she telling us in 1986 to kind of be afraid of? When Orwell wrote 1984, he was saying, be afraid that some version of our contemporary English socialism could be extended all the way to totalitarianism. Um, You know, when Anthony Burgess wrote Clockwork Orange, he was saying that the, he was arguing that the, the reign of the psychiatrists and the, and the sociological vision of society could become so dominant that people would try to challenge human nature. Um, what's, is she, what's she warning us to be aware of? Theocracy. Well, the, 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 a kind of, yeah. a kind of uh, puritanical theocracy. I mean, that's, that's the core thing. And, and then there's this afterword where we're told that the whole thing was a, manus- or a, a kind of a set of cassette mm. tapes that were found and it's being delivered now. That period is over. Right. The period, the Gileadan period is over and there's an co- academic conference. In- this is the coda to the book right. where you, right. you have this – the book, the novel in effect becomes a document that's then being read by And an suddenly academic. everything is finally explained. And I think there's a reference in there, isn't there not, to Iran? That like yeah. the, that there's certain parallels with Iran in that period. Yeah. So, so in other words, fear, it's theocracy. Godlike, yeah, fear these religious fundamentalist states. But I also think there's something interesting about she's 
she's also speaking to a world that has been more recently transformed by the feminist movement. So women didn't work to all women are expected to work or almost all women are expected to work. It's been radically transformed super quickly. So the difference from 1963 to 1986, there's been a total, you know, break groundbreaking transformation of our culture. And she's saying, you know, you feel like women have these rights and we should take them for granted, but we shouldn't because it takes one second and everything changes. So I think she was trying to say, we take for granted this equal world and this equal world doesn't exist or is very fragile or we're two seconds away from losing it. To me, that's what the book is about. And I guess she made a, a point, which I've seen her point out in, in interviews, that every element of the repression came from some real society. And she's put that's them all, to, all together. Well, I mean, maybe when I said I thought it was a bit crude is that I felt that it was a sort of somewhat mechanistic reading of how an authoritarian society's made, which we sort, which are totalitarian society in this case. Um, there are references also to the communist governments um, at, at, that were at that time, and and she occasionally pops out and gives you these references to historical events. But I mean, there's also a she's also describing the resistance. So the story is one of both this incredibly swift, totally weird quite kinky reign of <laughs> sexual domination. It's mm. a very, it's a book that's very absorbed with like the kinkiness of it how is, the exact yes, mechanics of sexual uh, oppression of women would take place in this particular thing and including how they themselves uh, sort of play into it. Um, and and at the same, t and, and she's, she's really interested in the mechanics of the kinkiness, but she's also saying what would subvert this and undermine this? Well, that we actually are human beings through it all. And so we are going to crave the things that human beings do, decadence and love and human connection. And conversation, and which con is also forbidden right. for the handmaids. So conversation or, uh, you know, cigarettes or a nightclub or, you know, the idea of prostitution being desirable if the alternative is sexual slavery, right? Because there's a transactional mm. and kind of a hint of desire and a game in it and so forth. And um, and the quest for love being the thing that will keep people going, and also that people just keep killing themselves. So you know, you, it, it's not a very successful enslavement. There are all these references to the fact. I mean, it seems like a very tiny world. Um, this Gilead. It almost sounds like a city state, mm. and they're they're the colonies of these, these <laughs> other places. At one point, there's a TV report where. In Detroit, the Hamitic peoples are being resettled, which again sounds like an inner city reference to sort of you know all all the blacks are being dealt with out there. She she shunts off a lot of other social issues. I um, mean, it's just it's funny. Every, just, almost like, everything in it. How's anything seem, made? Yeah. Where does food come from? None of it's clear. You know, there's also a war going on. I'm now feeling the need to do something <laughs> I've never done before, literally in my entire life, which is defend the TV show and say <laughs> because I'm not a TV person. But I feel like in this instance, I don't think this book is high literature. None of us do. But um, I think in this, per in this case, the TV show actually answers some of what you were objecting to, Philip, about the awkwardness or the sort of mechanics being too clink you know, clunky. Uh. Like we feel the, the effort of constructing this universe. And it is answered in the TV show by two things. One is the kind of it's visually incredible, <laughs> like just the way she has the handmaids look and the way they move and the way you sort of get really vividly. You're not, you go to the supermarket with this person, but you're not allowed to talk to her and you have these wings on your head. They have these wear these weird bonnets that make them not allowed to talk to each other. And just the 
the kind of fascism and the groups and the group identity is comes across much more vividly in the TV show. It's also subtler. It's actually subtler. And um it also is better in terms of the acting. There are really good actresses in it who are incredible and it just comes across much more much more in a much more nuanced way. And even the scene the show is incredibly faithful to the book. She has a scene that she talks about where the, the protesters, are, they, this new um, army shoots at the protesters. And she also has a scene where our heroine, June, goes to the store to buy a pack of cigarettes. She's super stressed out. And her card is declined. Like her visa's declined. And then... This her, is in the early phase. This is yeah, pre- in the early phase before this happens. Yeah. And her visa declined. The reason it's declined, it turns out, she keeps trying it and she's really confused. She calls the bank. The reason is because they've blocked all women from owning property. But the way she reveals this in the book is pretty good scene, but in the movie it's it's better. And the scene in the march where there are people going out to protest and this kind of connects to me with our world where obviously a lot of us are involved in protesting in some way or we see it on TV is that there are these protesters and it's this really familiar scene. People are protesting this new group that's taken over and somebody just shoots them and they die and then they stop protesting. And the way this works in the in the TV show is so much more dramatic and, like, upsetting and really vivid to us and kind of speaks to it's not what's happening right now, but it just somehow gives a feeling that is much more chilling. And I think the, the overall, the mood of the show is so much more chilling than the book itself. So I think this might be that rare instance where the television show is better than the book. But is it when it was made? I mean, is it that this story now has resonance in Trump's America that it did not necessarily have in Reagan's America? When was the show made? It must have been made. No, the show oh, is new. The show, the show is brand I know, new. Show I know, brand. but was it filmed oh. in, like, it must have been in the Well, they must have gotten started on it. I don't know. <laughs> they don't do anything explicitly. I mean, they don't, you know, they're no they don't little, do any. They're no little winks. And I think it was, it's overplayed to say we're now in danger of becoming The Handmaid's Tale. Like, it's not like that. <laughs> I, don't I think, think that's the wrong question. That's, that's the, the wrong, wrong way to look at it. It's the wrong right. question to ask because books like this, I mean, first of all, it seems to be The Handmaid's Tale so closely modeled on 1984 right. in every way. And the the question to ask is not, is this plausible? No. 1984 is yeah. not plausible. Brave New World is not plausible. The, the question is, does the extrapolation of this outer limit, this extreme, illuminate. shed light, illuminate our society. And that's what, you know, that's where 1984 wins. And the question is, does this do that too? Does this, well, you have There's this There's one great conference. moment yeah. where she, her bank account's been taken away and she loses her job yeah. in this really dramatic scene where all women lose their job everywhere. And, um, and she wonders whether her um, husband likes it. And he's a nice guy. He's yeah, a great liberal a good person. He's it's a, a really good the, scene. Yeah. And she doesn't want to ask him. And she somehow never says to him, like, do you like this, actually? But she gets this feeling. He says to her, I'll take care of you, which is sweet. But it really cuts at the heart. And this is why I really felt like he she does get ambiguity in here. Yeah. Um, and it cuts at the heart of a, a compelling question here, which is, do the men in The Handmaid's Tale actually secretly kind of like this new world and what it means, even the nice guys? And I feel like there's something in that question. Does That's the commander like being the commander? Do the women – so and even the – there's do women like power over other women? There's a lot of questions in here where I feel like she's pushing it the, that. And and at the change of is there something underlying some power structures here that are so – cartoonishly played out in this book, they're actually really true about our world. And to me, that was kind of, that raised pretty interesting questions. And I think it, you know, we have to, I think it 
accounts for some of the kind of mesmerizing pe- way people were mesmerized with the series in particular. I mean, did you? But did you think that scene was how how to ask a question psychologically or politically accurate in the sense that her husband would have responded that way? I mean, clearly he was. Uh, you get why he's no. He just says the nice thing to say, which is, "I'll take care of you. You have no money. I'll take care of you." That's like totally but normal also, thing to say. She's wondering, does he like it? And maybe he does. Yes, it gets sexualized. Gets then sexualized. Then. I mean, he, right. he he wants that night to like have a have a, get yeah. it on. Yeah, and she she's doesn't. Like, she's eh. just feeling cool. She's just she's not like totally turned on him at all. But she's and 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 then she starts to be creeped out by this feeling that like he's a little turned on by the whole like situation and which is obviously turning her off like by realizing that she's that she's very much not in the mood because of what's just happened and that he's in the mood despite what happened but maybe not just despite yes is is is, is, it's not a great scene but it's a great it's a sharp moment it's it's a a very sharp sharp moment moment. and i think the power is that and maybe i'm bringing my own thoughts into this but i think some of the resonance and some of the power is here's this rapid social change feminism has transformed the world what are the ways in which we are either attached to or still caught up in some of the older power dynamics between men and women? And to me, that this book really raises those questions to the surface, be- partly because it's so extreme and almost uncomfortable. Like when Philip was talking about the kinkiness, it gets like really uncomfortable, both in the show and the book. It's super weird. but It's very anti-erotic. Yes, but yeah, it's, but it's also but weirdly... It's... It's step-by-step it step so step and kind of breathless. There are all yeah. these little short sentences, right. and it's all a little breathless. And also, also what happens is, like, because everything's fetishized, right? Mm-hmm. Every, you know, the, the outfit is fetishized. Every movement is fetishized. You know, having a cigarette, a glance is fetishized, mm-hmm. it's, which, of course, goes into this kind of puritanical view, like a mm-hmm. glimpse of the ankles, right? Mm-hmm. So everything becomes super kinky. If everything is transgressive, Mm-hmm. then you're always like a tremble with thoughts about what is what. Right. And and she plays that up very breathlessly. I mean, they're just like short, short sentence, short sentence, short sentence, and, short I sentence. I mean, there's a weird <laughs> fascination with, which we could almost say nostalgia about, and an almost sadistic fascination with that the, that kind of old-fashioned power dynamic. Like you're saying, a glance means this. Or her relationship with the driver, she ends up having this illicit relation with the driver. Who's like the pro. Yes, but it's all a little bit, it's it's obviously evil, the new world, but she's weirdly sadistically fascinated with every element of it. So I think the kind of weirdness of this dystopia is is about that. And and also she's questioning in a way how we're this this change like when things change like is it real how much of it is real how much of us are still back are we really back in the 1690s somewhere in our heart in some tiny way yeah. i mean to me she's kind of raising those questions well What's i mean the- there's there's this huge scene uh which is also one of the climactic scenes in which um the women are all gathered all the women are summoned to some sort of public for square forum for a ritual punishment of transgressors. And again, these transgressions tend to be uh, sexual. Um, and uh, in this case, I mean, some of them are political, but they're always, those are the ones that we've just only heard about offstage or seen the bodies hanging on a, a wall um, where, they're, where they're left after they're killed. But here, basically, all these women are gathered and they're sort of talked to by this nun-like 
um, you know, school marmish woman who's like, now girls, you know, basically, um, you're going to, and then they, they present a rapist. He is guilty of rape mm. now, you know, and it's not, the, the book suggests that he's not, that he's being set up, that he's actually a political dissident, but he's being accused of rape because if you present a, a rapist, the punishment is, you know, they sort of blow a whistle and all the women can fall on him and tear him to shreds. And, and then they, they blow so another whistle like and they stoning, back off. Yeah. So yeah. it's like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And so so this is what happens. All these women just sort of like start kicking him and tearing him and pounding him to death in a mob killing. And then they back off. And it's referred to, again, in this like little coda bit where the academics are discussing, like, did such things happen? And indeed, we do have evidence that this was one of the things that happened and that the women were given this as a kind of release against the males. But it also suggested, you know, some sort of commentary on anti-rapist uh, feminist discourse and maybe that it had its extremes. And I mean, it's it's a little you don't want to translate it too directly because she doesn't. And I, I'm not going to say that I, I know exactly what she's getting at, but there's certainly a viciousness to these oppressed people. Um, that she's describing, that is one of the important points she's trying to illustrate. But again, how does that tell us about ourselves? It tells us that it, you know, people quickly normalize and people are mobs are dangerous. But yeah, again, that's I mean, I think, it's schematic. It's crude. It's it's sort of obvious. Well, I like the case Katie makes here for for its value being sort of psychologically interpretive. That there's right. this, you know, that there's this. Uh, these backwards views that are still in people's hearts, even if they no longer articulate them. But I think I'm trying to put my finger on why the the book was was a little unsatisfying <laughs> for me. I think the problem is that the extrapolation is not. It may be looking at this with the benefit of hindsight or, or too much context, but. The trends were actually in the opposite direction from what's being extrapolated. So what happened in the decade or so before this novel was written was Roe v. Wade. Abortion went from being illegal in many places to being legal everywhere. Pornography went from being severely restricted and books being banned in libraries to basically being legal and ubiquitous. So, you know, the trends in the period that's up to this novel, despite what might have been very visible either in feminist, a certain kind of feminist subculture, or if you were paying a lot of attention to Jerry Falwell's latest speech, despite that, the vast trend was towards women's equality, women's liberation, and and feminism becoming generally accepted. Uh, so, you know, the, in trying to draw, in trying to kind of project the future, somehow the book was was drawing on a presumed backlash that it hasn't turned out to be that much of a backlash. And I guess for that reason, it doesn't read to me as having a lot of insight into the world we live in, because even it's defining this outward boundary, but it's hard to see that outward boundary isn't so visible. Am I making any sense? I don't know about that, but, but I mean, obviously, I, I don't really believe that, you know, a lot of people when the show came out were like, this is Trump's America, you know, there was a lot of sort of trying to, crudely analyze, uh, analogizing. And people were talking about the book. I mean, I think yeah, we, we had this book on our list from the beginning before yeah, the show yeah, because it, it was, was one of Trump those things. Book because, but I think that idea, which is the thing you think is unthinkable, this freedom you have or control you have over your own body or your own finances is a little more vulnerable than we feel. So that idea that this unthinkable thing is going to happen, I think we can all agree um, Trump saying, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is like nice 
people, you know, fine, um, very fine, very people. fine people among Lots them. Lots of unthinkable things right. have been happening There's, recently. That just happened, the unthinkable, but more unthinkable things will happen and have happened where we just think that could not happen on our national stage. I think the idea that slowly, piece by piece, these unthinkable things happen, he, she kind of gets that. We, we've we talked about Philip Roth's plot against America. He also do, addresses that issue, the kind of transformation of society very utterly. And I don't think Trump's obviously gotten there. He's been so far too incompetent. But I think the idea, another issue here is surrogacy, because the idea of women like having other women's babies is already like that's one of the things going on here that's kind of uh-huh. part of the creepiness. Like some people are going to be the slaves of other people and they're going to have their babies and give them to them. That's one big imagination here. And the handmaids get very upset when they have to give up their newborn baby to the wife, um, which is unha- happening. One of them tries to kill herself because of it. But I think uh, in terms of, I, I guess I see a little bit of Trump's, discussion about women or uh, the Republicans trying to chip away at Roe v. Wade. I do think there is some truth to the idea that these these things we take for granted, this world we take for granted is slightly imperiled but if, at the if, moment. If Trump were dictator, you know, the, the the country would look like the Jezebel nightclub scene. Oh, yeah, that's it true. It wouldn't look it, like, it wouldn't look like a handmaid scene. There wouldn't be, abortion wouldn't be banned by decree. Now, maybe in Mike Pence's America. Maybe in Mike Pence's maybe, America. This maybe is more Mike right. Pence's America. This is, this is the Mike Pence Trump book Trump cast. <laughs> cast. <laughs> this is Mike Trump's, I mean, this is Mike, Mike Pence's Pence. America. Remember when the, the not having dinner with a woman with a woman who's not your spouse like that's a little handmaid's tale right. frankly. yeah no that's true right. like yeah. a that creepy kinda, handmaid's tale point of view that is that's the kinkiness right there it's sort of like it's all too exciting you know it's wait like, and what's the phrase they say to each other like god's eye or god's when they they have this greeting under with under god's under eye, god's eye. Yeah. Under it's god. like, that's very mike pence to me yeah, and I think that she was, I mean, at that moment, it was that idea of theocracy. It was the idea, and and the commander explains. Or like, there was is a lot radical of Islamism, if you think about it? Like, it's, this is more like Saudi Arabia, you know? Yes, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think what what makes it also a bit of a misfit with Trump, not that she was attempting to fit with Trump, but I'm saying as, a, you know, when people try to say, well, what's the hands made tale telling us about our world now, is that although... Trump's misogyny and sort of just sheer sexual assaulter profile um, and swagger um, and the openness around that that he brought to his campaign, that isn't sort of the sexual politics aren't the defining feature of Trump's uh, nine, 10 months so far. Um, they, they're, they're there, but they're not this. I think many of us are aware of many other things coming first, whether it's uh, environmental degradation or race or, um, you know, sort of just sheer corruption, the dismantling of the bureaucracy overall rather than the inf- sort of creation of a police state. That, at least so far, is what it feels like. How that extends, we will see. Um, and, but in that sense, it's a very, it is a single issue view of this dystopian projection of where society could flip. Um, where it's well, most accurate. Well, they also really um, go for dissent. Um, I think the way Trump treats a newspaper like kind of fits into The Handmaid's Tale and the way they deal with like the written word or news, right. for instance. Like there is also an Orwellian kind of 
here's what happens if you aren't obedient to authority for everybody. I mean, they have this organization called the Eye that comes and picks people up and, like, interrogates them and maybe kills them. You know, there's kind of, like, that. No, this this is a total secret police state. I think what it's best on is normalization. Yes. I mean, as something that there's a, a little spark of recognition when you're reading it, the kind of, it feels a little accelerated. Yes. The idea that all this happened in three years and everybody somehow either was eliminated or submitted so totally, so enclosed. Um, but it's about the surrender to and gradual accommodation of. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. Tobias Wolf short story that I read many years ago where, where, as I remember it, the line was somebody saying, you know, people always say how wonderful it is, how adaptable humans are. It's also kind of awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's true. Uh, yeah. You know, it's really um, – it, it's always a, a question. You want people to be adaptable, and, and then you find out that adaptable means that they'll accommodate the Stasi state or they'll mm. um, work with they'll, – they'll slowly accept things. I thought about it. I was reading this partly during summer vacation, um, and you're on vacation. Everybody's talking about what a distressing time it is, and you wonder, well, is this going to look like some sort of strange decadence that we all went on with our plans and our lives – if uh, things really are hurtling towards not just a feeling of crisis, but an actual crisis. But I you think know, this North book may Korea have us, looming and so yeah. forth. Yeah, I'm just a little concerned this book may have us worried about the wrong thing. It's pointing us to think about theocracy and a certain model of totalitarianism when we've already normalized kleptocracy. We know exactly. we know what kind of dystopia we're getting with Donald Trump. We have a pretty good idea. Yeah. I don't think it's enslaving women and banning abortion and, and all of that. It's something not as bad as that, but pretty terrible. And we've already got it. And it's basically they're going to steal everything that's not nailed down and give it to their friends and 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 ransack the government. And pry up a lot of things that have been nailed down. Yeah. And give them away too. And you don't want to be wa- – I mean you want to be watching for the Salem witch trials, but you don't want to be focused on the Salem witch trials if what's happening is is very different than that. I think right, Pen- and I Pence think- is the – you're dead right that it's really about Pence's America. It is yeah. about Pence's America, and I think you're totally right. And I felt like the connections to Trump's America when the show started to come out were overblown in just that way because that isn't what's happening. It's not what's going to happen. But yet I still found it sort of chilling. Yeah. In a good way. Well, I think there is, you know, when when they did, did have the women's march, I mean, there I think there were some people wearing those wimples. You know, oh, there's yeah. certain this novel becomes <laughs> a touchstone because it is on school curriculums and so on. I mean, it's becoming one of those books that everybody, not everybody's read it, but almost everybody knows what it means, and it becomes a reference point as an outward boundary for a super extreme, much and, as 1984 guess, is, and it's useful yeah, that way. I, and I think it's also useful in. This, you know, when you say Roe v. Wade was passed, a lot of I teach at NYU, a lot of students like really don't kind of undergraduates I'm talking about remember that or have any knowledge of it and a time before abortion was legal. And I think it's useful to send the message of like these rights you take for granted are you shouldn't take for granted. You know, that idea that the world underlying our pretty equal looking world is a lot of ugly stuff. And I think this novel kind of vividly delivers that message. Yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, that would I would say that the strength of it is that it's not a, the the problem with it reading it today is that it's not at all a one to one 
analogy or allegory or parable of what we're feeling and seeing around us. Um, but the strength is that it's not really – it doesn't need to function only as a one-to-one. But and I, but the, I also – I just want to make one argument, which is I found maybe more than you guys that the shadow of a kind of 1690s Puritan America is – more powerful than we generally give it credit for being. So I feel like it does actually loom larger. And we sometimes forget that, especially in a place like New York City where we're sitting now. We kind of forget this sort of appeal, like in that scene I brought up where she says, does her husband like it that she lost her bank account? It's a little bit, to me, it's a reminder. It's a kind of very, it's an, I, I think of this book as like a nightmare. It's like a nightmare. It's a nightmare, but it's kind of a useful nightmare. So we're going to put this on our Trumpcast list of uh, books you should read to understand Trump's America, Philip? Um, not to understand Trump's America. There would be other reasons that you would read it or, but not, I, I don't think that that's its strength. Katie? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Let's read it to understand Trump's America. Mike, Mike Pence is very possible in there. <laughs> right. Yes, that's the Definitely. diplomatic, I'm going to take the diplomatic position. Read it in case we get Pence America, which <laughs> right. seems Pence, to become a little yeah, more likely. it's getting a little more likely week. every day. Read it in case you're hoping to be relieved of Trump's America before it. <laughs> <laughs> time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. The dark cloud of of the silver lining. For uh, Philip Gravich of The New Yorker and Katie Royfe of NYU, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for joining us for the Trumpcast Book Club. Thank you. Thanks. 